Hello everybody and welcome to the Evolve podcast. This is episode four and as with all my podcasts I'm really excited to bring you this one. This is with a lady who uh, I would consider a friend and a client through our coaching business. Um, she's faced a lot of adversity from a really young age but essentially continues to inspire myself, uh, a lot of our athletes and a lot of people around me. And I'm really genuinely honoured and touched that she's agreed to come on and uh, and have a talk about her life and the challenges that she's been through today. So I'm going to introduce you to Yanka, Yanka Penther. How are you? Hi, Ali. I'm really well. Thank you very much. Good, good. I'm, my struggle today is try not to give too much of your story away in the introduction because it's such an exciting, inspiring story. But um, I know you've been through a little bit of a tough time with lockdown. It's been pretty hard for everybody, but I think probably more so for for yourself in your scenario how are you how are you at the moment um I have a really good day today but I I have been taking it day by day it's been really tough for me um also because I'm a really sociable person I I love seeing people I I really thrive on uh social events like music gigs or uh, you know running events races things like that and that's all obviously not been happening um I've been shielding for most of the time because I'm extremely vulnerable to the COVID virus. So that has been tough. Yeah. So I think when I think back to the beginning of lockdown and everything sort of, you know, closing down pretty quickly, I seem to remember you sort of had to make a really harsh decision or hard decision to, to, to move out of your house, uh, to completely be solo for quite a while. And that in itself must have made lockdown quite isolating, I suppose. Um, yeah. And then on top of that, you had some other sort of problems with your back and everything. How did you manage to kind of get through that? Yeah, the first three weeks are really hard. So I stayed actually in the house, but my partner works uh, as a carpenter. So he couldn't not work. Uh, he's self-employed. So he went out um, and worked and he moved out for the first three weeks to, of course, keep me safe. That's one of his main worries was to come back and um, bring any bugs home, of course. Um and the first three or four weeks, it was also the time where, you know, we as a as a society, as a world, didn't really know about COVID very much. You know, everyone was really scared. A lot of my friends were scared. Um, I had friends who unfortunately passed away. Um, so, yes, you deal with all that on your own. You know, you can only see your partner through, a, through the window. Um, and that was really hard, uh, you know, not to be able to hug, you know, your partner and get that comfort. Uh, so yeah that was was tough um, and yes I, I had problems with my back because I, I'm normally a swimmer and in lockdown of course we couldn't go into the pools and I needed to exercise my lungs uh, to keep well to keep um, my muscles from deteriorating because of some of the drugs I had to take so I took up running and I ran a lot more than I did before so we're talking maybe five to ten k a week going up to 50 60 k a week within days um, and due to the drugs I take uh, because of medical condition my my discs are quite dry and I had a this um, herniated disc in two places which um, pressed on the nerve and I couldn't walk I was basically bedridden for three months and that was not good for mental health at all and also very painful um, thankfully I've come out the other end now with a with a spinal injection and a lot of support from family and friends but yeah it wasn't the most fun time I've had <laughs> have to be honest I've, I can remember keeping you know we've kept kept tabs on you over the last sort of eight and nine months and yeah there's been some pretty uh pretty sort of 
tough times for you and it's really really great to see you coming out the other end looking really good feeling positive and, and ready to kind of almost get back to some sort of normality whatever that's going to be for yourself for us for everybody um but yeah you're really doing well and you're on the right tracks and that's great you've mentioned there already about some of the medication you've been on and some of the reasons why you have to keep active and keep exercising so i think it's good to sort of almost let the listener know a little bit more about that in a bit more context because I think everybody's prioritised their physical health um, through lockdown for, for, you know, more for mental well-being than anything else at the moment, because particularly those of us that race, all the races have been cancelled. But for you in particular, the fact that you're able to run and when you are able to swim, you're able to swim well is, for me, it's kind of like mind-blowingly amazing. And so let's go back to the beginning and talk about your childhood from a very very early age because before I offered to, or you offered to do this pod with me I kind of knew a bit about your background because obviously I've coached you and we've, 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 we've worked with each other before but in the notes you sent me it kind of really sort of opened my eyes as to what struggles you've faced what um, physical setbacks you've had which makes your recent achievements which we'll come to later on just amazing unbelievable so i'm going to pass it over to you just to talk, sort of talk us through your childhood and and, and paint the picture of what that, what that must have been like yeah so um i was born um in 82 in germany with a condition called cystic fibrosis um that wasn't detected until i was about three months of age and cystic fibrosis is uh, affects the respiratory system mostly but also all other organs um um, I've got diabetes because of it. My bones are rather brittle because of that, as well as other medication I take. Uh, nutrients absorption is not as good as it is with, with normal healthy people. So a lot of little issues along the lines that are not necessarily lung related, uh, digestive issues, uh, things like that. So um, I was uh, poorly when I was first diagnosed, of course, when I was a baby and I had lots of hospital stays. Um, and my life expectancy, my parents, it's really odd to think back. My parents were younger than I am now when I was born. So they were told when, when they were 30, you know, that their little the toddler, their only child, wasn't going to see her second birthday. And that must be really tough, me thinking now as an adult. Um, I don't think I appreciated that until I become sort of older. Um, because the life expectancy of people with cystic fibrosis was not, it wasn't an adult disease. It was a childhood disease because no one reached adulthood. Um, there were no plans for people with cystic fibrosis to go to university, to have jobs, to become parents themselves. That was not on the cards in the, in the early eighties. Um, and my dad was very much um, a bit of a rebel. He thought, you know, no way I'm going to, I'm going to give this, this child everything I've got and I'm going to, going to fight for it and um, so you know he he very much educated himself on cystic fibrosis there was not that much known about this this condition um, a lot of fellow uh, CF parents said you know don't don't put her into school there's no point don't let her go to you know there's no point in putting her through any um, challenges or any difficulties because she's not going to live that long anyway um, and my dad, my parents both are very much against that. So from the beginning, it was like um, a bit of tough love, you know, a bit of, okay, you're going to go to school and you're going to work hard and you're going to get good grades because there is a future for you. 
and you work your butt off, you know, um, which I guess instilled a, a work ethic in me and also a, a not so give up attitude. You know, I'm, I'm quite feisty and I don't take no for an answer. Um, I've seen and... that. I've seen that in some of the swimming sessions. <laughs> you've, you've seen done, yeah. that when I told you I want to learn a butterfly stroke, <laughs> I know. So, <laughs> um, yeah, so I went to school. I, I passed my second birthday. It was never easy, you know. I was always coughing, always uh, sort of quite asthmatic with with um, respiratory issues. But I managed, you know. We had I had to get up an hour early before my friends because I had to do my treatment. I had to come back in at lunchtime from school and do my treatment. You know, I had to not couldn't not see friends straight away after school. I had to do my treatment. So, but I did as much as I could to live as normal as possible. You know, and my, my, my parents always encouraged me to do sports, be active, um, to sort of cough up the, the, the stuff that's on your chest, you know, build up of, of fluid and phlegm and, and you get chest infections. And, and I managed uh, and I was really active in school. I had lots of friends. I, I loved being around people. So CF was part of my life, but my parents always made sure it was not me and it was not my life. It's very different, you know, not to identify with, with that health condition. And I had hospital stays, you know, because I would get sick. And when I hit puberty, I didn't want to take any of my medication. Didn't want to do any of that stuff. Wasn't interested. Um, and then I got really ill when I was sort of 18, 19, got really poorly. Had to go into hospital for the first time because I was, I was really ill, had a, had a pneumonia. And um, that was the, the first time I think I realized, oh, this is really serious. Um, I had seen people before, sort of when I was 15, 16, I went to a sort of... Um, respiratory uh, camp in Belgium where we you met lots of other people with that same condition some people were younger some people who were a bit older and that's the first time I saw people with uh, CF who had reached adulthood they were probably around 25 at the time and I was about 15 um, so I thought oh great you know this is amazing but I also saw some really poorly people I saw some really poorly adults um, and at that point I spoke to my dad about you know, life expectancy, what will my life will be like? What will my adulthood look like? Uh, and, um, you know, the numbers were still pretty dire. You know, my life expectancy at that point statistically was about 1920. And at 15, 19 is not that far away, you know. Um, and we talked about other options um, because I saw people who are very poorly, who are in oxygen machines, who are very thin, who are grey, who who are like ghosts, you know, who are really ill, uh, who are on a machine to keep their kidneys going, who are on a machine to keep their heart going. And at 15, um, I, I didn't see that as an option for myself. I know um, probably like a lot of teenagers, you see very black and white and you're very much, you know, yes or no, and this is what I want and this is what I don't want. But I did for the first time talk about another option, you know, and, and, and not having to go down that route. Um, and but you know when you're well this is all theory when you're well you read about uh, possibly exit plants you know and and uh, sort of um, assisted suicide but that's all very theoretical and when you're 15 and 16 and the world is yours you can make very brave decisions and say this is not for me I'm going to you know um, live life to the fullest and die young and all that stuff when it later on comes to that point, it's a very different ball game, can be anyway. Um, but you know, so I was 15, 16, grew up, um, 
sort made my decision on life and and did my apprenticeship did hotel business management traveled around the world for five years backpacked always my nebulizer in the back um my backpack and would always come home sort of on an annual basis to my parents really ill really poorly get a sort of quick two weeks in hospital and go off traveling again because I didn't know how long I had and I was got to make sure I'll make the most of the time I have and I wanted to travel of course I did my qualifications so you know I did my apprenticeship um but I also made sure I didn't um sort of I don't know save my, my money for a house at some point or I wanted to live now and um yeah so there I am <laughs> yeah that's really cool like living in the moment um I kind of I'd like to sort of get into the as a 15 year old having to not having to but having the maturity to make a decision where you might think about assisted suicide as an actual option for most 15 year olds I can think back to when I was 15 it was about what sport am I going to play this afternoon what what am I going to eat to start the tonight and if there wasn't the right food in the house that would be a bad day kind of thing so to, to speak about the maturity and the clarity of thought to to really to, to have that as a as a viable option and to be okay with that is I think testament to your approach to to life and it really shows through today you know these days you know looking back how how that kind of experience how you do approach scenarios and situations you you definitely do live in the moment whether you know that I think you do know that but I'm, I can reinforce that which is which is a really cool thing um so I guess moving forwards into sort of 2010 you mentioned about being diagnosed with diabetes as part of cystic fibrosis or as, as a cause of cystic, cystic fibrosis how did that make you feel was that kind of like a sucker punch or was was that just part of it uh, yeah that was really rubbish um and I was diagnosed I, at the time I was in Peru, I was volunteering in Peru, in the slums of Peru, and I, um, I went to Peru because I wanted to volunteer there, and I was teaching English um, in, for disadvantaged, disadvantaged kids, and I was also surfing a lot, and I remember I surfed the longest left wave, the Chikawa wave, <laughs> and I nearly passed that, well, I didn't surf it very well, <laughs> but um, it was awesome, it was really great fun, but I remember being out in the water and, um, and being really close to passing out, out of from the middle of nowhere really I didn't know why this was and when I came home it was very clear that blood sugars had been had been going up and down quite dramatically and um, yeah I was diagnosed with with diabetes that itself wasn't so much of an issue for me but the insulin was I mean having had the um, the experience of constant needles in your veins uh, sometimes infected because of antibiotic uh, intravenous drugs that I need, needed all my life needles were horrible for me and now I know that an insulin needle is very different to a needle that goes into your vein but that thought I was just kicking and screaming I didn't want it I did not want that um, so my my doctor was really good and he he compromised on tablets at first but it didn't work because I want to be flexible with what I eat and when I eat you know I don't eat at the same time the same thing and I also want to be independent and I didn't want to um, be like a slave to a regime that took the the life, uh, you know, the joy of life away. Eating is a joy and eating nice things. And I have a sweet tooth. So, um, so it, it actually worked out much better being on insulin because now I can eat what I like when I like. Um, 
I I think once I if I feel restricted, I get really grumpy. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, once I learned that regime, it was just another thing that I owned. I was like, okay, I want to have this kind of life. That means I need to make that adjustment and I need to get on board with insulin. Because if I don't, I get poorly, I lose my kidney or I lose my sight. I had really blurry vision for a, a number of months, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and that's very scary. So, you know, if, if you, it was for me like, okay, if I want to keep traveling, if I want to keep working, if I want to keep having a good life, then I best get on with it. So I did. <laughs> nice. There's a bit of a theme here about your independence, I think, coming through. Um, and you, you've obviously kind of you've learned just to be independent I think that's probably instilled in you through your parents as well that you know you're Yanka you've got an identity that's separated from persistent fibrosis and that independence is really strong the obviously following from the 2010 diabetes um, there seems to be a kind of a knock-on domino effect that well, you, you explain it. You, you'll, you'll explain it better than I can. Tell, tell the listeners what happened over the next couple of years. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, um, again, wasn't the best of times. So 2010, I got diagnosed with diabetes. And then um, a year later, I, I fell into a river in Cornwall. Um, <laughs> my, my, my very young dog at the time had jumped into a river. I panicked. I tried to pull him out. I fell in. And because the ledge was really high, I couldn't get out. So um, thankfully after about I think 20 minutes and it was this was in December so it was really cold and again I thought you know I did think of that situation I thought this is going to be so embarrassing people will find me dead drowned or or whatever and it's one of those stupid people who tried to pull out their dog my dog had made it out obviously out of that river and I was still in there (laughs) um so I I thankfully a, a dad came with his two young children cycling down the um the camel trail actually in Cornwall and, and pulled me out and managed to call an ambulance. Um, but that hypothermia and that chest infection I got on the back of that um, did some damage to my lungs. And then the year after I caught swine flu. So those two consecutive winters um, definitely damaged my lungs irreparably. So uh, in 2012, I realized, mm, my I'm not recovering well from my infections I'm not recovering back to where I was before I'm sort of slowly dropping a lung function my weight's not going back up really I'm I'm struggling so I spoke to my um, cystic fibrosis consultant um, and he said well you know I can refer you to Halfield Hospital which is in Greater London and they do transplants and that's sort of when it started to dawn on me that I'm an end-stage cystic fibrosis that was 2012. So that's quite a big turning point in your approach to your life prior to that point, suddenly to in 2012, sort of realising that, okay, this is actually getting quite serious now, you know, for you. What are the options then in 2012? What were your options that were put in front of you? Um, Well, I was, um, I was transferred to, to Halford Hospital where I had an assessment and I was then still too well. So for a transplant to be considered to be eligible to be put on the transplant list, you have to be poorly enough to, of course, need a transplant, but you have to be well enough to be likely to survive it and to survive the waiting time, which is on average 18 months. So there is sometimes a very small window of where you can be listed. 
you want to be at the very beginning of that window because waiting is a long game and you can deteriorate very quickly. So it's important if you want to go to that transplant route to keep in touch with the doctors, you know, to do all the tests all the time, kidney function, heart function, all sorts of assessments. But I wasn't even there yet at that point. So I was transferred to Halfred and they said, well, you're still too well. Um, but I wasn't on oxygen at that point. I was just, you know, struggling to walk sometimes and just not getting very much better. And, and I wasn't as active as I was before. But in the greatest scheme of things, I was nowhere near ready for transplant. Um, it was just the fact that I had to come to terms with the fact that I am getting to that point of respiratory failure. And that is mentally... I think more challenging than physically for me it was mm -hmm. um, because it takes you back to that 16 year old it takes you back to that person that so bravely made the decision that that life isn't for you because I was very much on the way to be, become one of those adults that I'd seen when I was younger that I definitely didn't want to become but you have no choice you have no choice in how CF um, progresses cystic fibrosis is the same progression. You you die of respiratory failure. You know, um, it's just a matter of when, mm -hmm. and it's a matter of how you deal with it. But you're not going to change cystic fibrosis. That 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 part I don't have control over. I have control over how I deal with it and what decision I make and how I live and how I die. That's that's my choice, and I very much um, demand to have that choice. <laughs> Um, yeah, so so that was t tough in terms of, oh, wow, I am now this adult. That was hard. And there were definitely um, many nights where I cried and where you frustrated and you you don't want this. You, you know, you you say, oh, why me? And because it's just a genetic bad luck why I have it. You know, my parents, it's a genetic condition. My parents are both carriers. They didn't know this in the early 80s. No one tested for this in the early 80s. It was a 25% chance that their child genetically has cystic fibrosis as a dominant gene and has the actual illness. That's tough. But, you know, it doesn't spare you from the thought of what have I done to deserve it type thing. You know, you, of course, you feel a bit sorry for yourself. Absolutely. You mentioned in the notes that you sent across to me before doing this part that because I asked you a couple of questions about your mental health and your mental health journey, that this was never really depression, that it was more the things that were being taken away from you were the things that kind of got you down. Um, and that's that's quite interesting. And you kind of alluded to it there in, a few minutes ago in almost controlling what you can control and coming to terms with it and accepting what you can't control. And I think that's a lesson for a lot of people to put towards any scenario is controlling what you can control and giving effort to what you can control and just accepting what is outside of your con your control. And in your scenario in particular, that was a very, very strong mindset because if you worry about the things that you can't control, it's almost wasted energy that will cloud your decision-making uh, moving forwards. So then 2013, you went active on the transplant list and very quickly, on the 19th of April 2013, you went in for a, a double lung transplant, which before I hand back to you, before I met you and before you actually told me what you'd been through, I didn't even realise that a lung transplant 
what one large transplant, let alone a double, was even possible. Uh, and, and you know that's my ignorance towards these, these sorts of things. But that's just incredible. How does it, you know, for me talking to you and listening to your story, and I'm sure for the listeners, it's just a, a mind-boggling thing that's just just simply amazing. How does it feel for you, you know, going in on that on that day? Go for it, you know. Tell us how it how it all how it all kind of felt. It's uh, I'm really intrigued. yeah. I never I never forget that time, and I say time because it wasn't just the one day. So when it came closer to so for the first assessment, I said I was still too well, but you have to go back six months later for for reassessment. And six months later, I was very much ill enough. I was very much poorly enough, and I discussed the option with the consultant there, who was fantastic, because I went with an open mind into that second assessment, not knowing whether I would agree or whether I would want to be put on that transplant list. Because um, I very much remembered my decision at 15 and 16 and that hadn't left me completely. Um, because when you go down the transplant route, which is a huge privilege to even be, to get that privilege to be on that list because not everyone does because you have to, go through physical and um, phys psychological assessments. But I didn't know if I wanted to do that because once you, it's a commitment you make, you commit to that, which means you have to go through a lot of pain. You might have to get really close to death, closer than you, than you feel you can. Because, because you, you know, until that point where they pull you off that list, which may happen, then you may get too poorly and they say you're not now, you cannot be translated anymore. And um, not, not to be too, sound too harsh, but when it comes to suicide, and I thought about various options, some options are not there anymore because you're too ill to execute them, if I can put it that way. Okay, yeah. Um, and I talked to my parents again in detail in 2013 and at the end of 2012 for my decisions. And it must have been heartbreaking for them to hear their only daughter speak like that. You know, I was 30 at the time. Um, but I talked about how can I do it? How can I do it safely? How can I do it to make sure I'm successful? Because this isn't a cry for help. I am, have decided I do not want to live like this. So there was a lot of conversation about... Um, the logistics, uh, for lack of better word, and also how everyone feels about this, because, you know, my partner at the time, is he going to find me? How's that going to work? Because when you're at that point, that's how, what you think about, right? It's not just yourself, it's all your friends and, and everyone around. So this is when I talked to my parents about assisted suicide with Dignitas. And as I went down to sign up for the transplant and go down all these assessments, I also signed up with Dignitas. Um, and my dad and I had made an agreement that when I have had enough, that I'll call him and he'll take me. That was a promise he made me. And in my naivety, I thought I will wake up one day and I'll know today's the day. It's never that clear because you always have in the back of your mind, what if I got the call then a day later? And what a shame it would be to have wasted that, you know, those sort of niggly voices, which I guess were good because... I obviously didn't go through with it, but it was really, and what I wanted to say, it wasn't depression that it was an acute feeling of, I can't live like this. I had been thinking about that for 10 years. It was always something I'd considered. 
And it gave me a, a feeling of empowerment that I didn't have to suffer endlessly. You know, it gave me, um, it was a reassurance to know that I have a way out that's safe. So, so that's what I just wanted to, to, to mention. And then, well, I, I went, I did, I did consider transplant for really maybe um, very trivial reasons, but you know, I wanted to surf one more wave. That was one of the reasons. I I lived in Newquay at the time in Cornwall. And oh, I was still so rubbish at surfing. And I wanted to get better. <laughs> so that was a huge reason. And then of course, um, I wanted to spend a bit more time with my partner at the time. You know, I was in love and and we had only been together for a year and a half, I think. And and I was just you know, when you're at a party and you just want to dance to one more song, you want to be at one more song, you know, and then you can go and it's that kind of feeling. It really yeah, is that yeah. kind of feeling. We're like, oh, I'm not ready to go yet. How cool is that then? The surfing and a, and a partner that you're in love with. I mean, there's two big reasons. I think anybody listening to this podcast will be like, yeah, I can I can resonate to, if not, <laughs> if not both of them, I can at least resonate with one. Um, yeah, that's amazing. Um, yeah, so um, I, I had my various assessments and thankfully I... I um, got through them and I remember in the beginning of March, I was offered a list uh, on the active, a place on the active transplant list. And, you know, they had said before average waiting time is about 18 months, which seems forever because at this point, I'm now on an oxygen tank 24 seven. Um, I'm on a feeding machine because I need to gain weight to make it on the transplant list. You have to have a certain BMI, which I didn't have because of my you know, constant coughing, my, my heart rate was 150 resting because my body just tried to survive. So you burn a ton of calories, which you don't eat because you're constantly um, physically sick because of the coughing fits. Um, so you're having um, a feeding tube. I had a, I had a feeding tube in my tummy to, to get the calories in. They, they pump 4,000 calories in at, 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 at night just to, to get a BMI of 16. You know, that's the sort of um, numbers we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and so, yes, I'm, I'm really poorly. And, um, and they, I got a call. So they, 18 months, sorry, it's, it's a really long time. You can't even think that you'll survive another 18 days like that, let alone, let alone 18 months. But you take it day by day. It's very similar to locker. You take it day by day. <laughs> yeah. because, because mentally, you don't survive otherwise. And. And one of the things I struggled the most in that time, this is before March, uh, I remember I was really poorly the December, the December, the Christmas of 2012. I was really upset because I knew it was going to be my last Christmas if I didn't get lungs. I knew that. Um, and I was really upset, mainly for my partner, because I thought it's really sad for him, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but um, so I knew and I remember New Year's 2012. Those things, I mean, I can't remember what I did yesterday, Ali, sometimes, but those things don't leave you. Um, I remember New Year's 2012 that all I wanted was new lungs. And it's very odd to wish for that because obviously someone needs to die. You have to get someone's lungs. So, of course, you don't wish for someone to die, but you so want to live. You so want to live. Um, and, and, yeah, so I they say 18 months and you live day by day and one of the things I really struggled with was the loss of my independence when you're on these machines um walking is is not something you do you don't walk to the kitchen even if it's four steps and make a cup of tea you you can't do that because 
you think about the calories you're wasting, the weight you're losing, the energy you're spending, and you're probably not going to, going to finish that cup of tea because you're going to fall asleep from exhaustion because you finished that before you finish that cup of tea. So it's very surreal for me to talk about this now, knowing how well I am, but this was the life I lived and that's the life a lot of my fellow CF patients or, you know, um, live uh, when they get poorly. And the loss of my independence, the loss of being able to just walk out the door, um, you know, getting dressed. I can't dress, couldn't dress myself at the point, couldn't wash myself at the point. I had to get help my partner to get to the bathroom, those things. It, I remember it felt like, you know, like peeling the layers of an onion and you really ask yourself, well, I remember I asked myself, who, who am I? Because I identify with being sociable, with being active, with being, you know, a, a fun, bubbly person. But when you're that close to the end, that had left me. I wasn't bubbly because I didn't have the breath to laugh or the breath to talk, you know, so I couldn't love food because I would constantly be sick from it. Um, I was so dehydrated, I couldn't enjoy music, I couldn't enjoy a book. So when it comes to then this sort of identity crisis a little bit of who are you and what makes you you, that's something I struggle with. Absolutely. Yeah, I can, um, ima I can imagine that sounds debilitating. Yeah, um, yeah, that was but, really, really hard. But like um, you said, taking it day by day is the best best possible course of action as as, as we all know over the last yeah. months but um yeah that, that's an absolute challenge i don't really know what the right word to put to that is or the, the right words but then you got the, you got the call yeah so because i when i talked to my consultant about the chances of getting these lungs because that's what you talk about when you have these assessments and it turns out well i'm quite tall for some cystic fibrosis so that means I could probably get female or male lungs because you can cut them to size a little bit, which is incredible. You cut okay. lungs yeah. to size, like, wow. and up to sort of 5%, not, not yeah. ridiculous. But I had a large enough chest cavity to have almost double the chances of getting lungs. And also my blood type, um, I think it's A positive, um, is quite common. So a lot of their trans uh, lungs or organs come in with that blood group, which is one of the um, criteria on matching. And I was, even though I didn't feel well, for a consultant who sees people like me all day long, he said, you are still rather well, so you have a good chance of surviving your waiting time of 18 months. So that's why I said, okay, let's try it. I mean, sign up with Dignitas in the meantime, but let's go with this, right? <laughs> um, and yeah, so, so that's why I did. So I got the call a week later. I got, I was waiting for me. I hadn't even packed my hospital bag because I was not organized. I thought, oh, I have 18 months. Um, they called me and they said, we have lungs for you. I remember it was three o'clock in the morning and everything's, oh my God, you know, nothing got packed. Are you nearly sick from, of not excitement. It's not excitement. It's, it's anxiety. Uh, and of course, hope, so much hope. Um, they called me, we drive uh, the sort of, I don't know, five or six hour drive and they have to check all of the organs, of course. All organs have to be a certain standard in order to be transplanted. And 12 hours later, they said, we're really sorry, the lungs aren't good enough. And everything just leaves you. Um, I mean, they tell you before this happens because there are so many organs coming in and you have such good chance of getting a transplant. That also means there is a high chance of these false calls, that's what they're called. Um, I, I know people now who've had 10 false calls and are waiting still, you know, so that is, 
again, mentally and physically draining for everyone involved. So that was the um, the twelfth of April, uh, the twelfth of April, and then on the nineteenth or eighteenth of April, a week later to the date was a Thursday. Never forget that. Get another call, and I hadn't even physically recovered from the first call. And I know it sounds weird to be like, oh, it was a week ago, but you're physically so on 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 sort of low batteries. You know, um, you need so much time to recover from these trips physically that when they called and I thought oh, I know it's going to be another false call but you have to go you you know you you can say no if you get a call you can absolutely say no I'm not ready mentally or physically but if you do that twice in a row you get taken off the transplant list temporarily because essentially you are potentially taking the chance from someone else and they want to make sure whoever's on the list is going to be ready and I was I was mentally ready I just was exhausted as tired um, but I said, no, we're going to go. Absolutely. It was a 10 o'clock in the evening phone call and we drove up and eight hours later, they said, you've got 20 minutes to call your family and we're going down in theatre and getting your new lungs. That was exactly the wording. I'll never forget that. It was um, 7.30 in the morning when they wheeled me through. Amazing. Wow, I can see, everyone listening can't see it, but I can see your face was lighting up when you said that about the new lungs. That's incredible. Um, Wow, there's so much in there. Um, <laughs> what, I mean, what about, so you, you, you got taken into surgery, into theatre, they, oh, they take one set out, put the next set in. That's it, well, <laughs> when you say set, they actually, I mean, as you can imagine, um, you, you know, I'm a bit of a geek, so I'd watched transplants before. I YouTubed everything. I read up about everything. I read loads about this, so I knew the logistics of it so they they literally um well when I was transplanted I was transferred by a German surgeon funnily enough <laughs> um and he had just developed a new technique so normally they uh do a clamshell cut which is they they cut uh, across um across the breastbone and obviously cut cut saw through the breastbone and open you up sort of top to bottom if that makes sense Mm -hmm. And then they take one lung out, one lung, put the new nice lung in, and then they do the same with the other side. I'm just training, so I hope I explain it well. Yeah, that no, makes sense. Um, and now with the new, but the problem with that is that um, it really recovery takes a long time because you cut through the through that bone. You can't drive for three months. You can't do physio very well. You're in a lot of pain. You've got wires that hold everything together. So the risk of infection is really high. I mean, <laughs> it's fine, you do all that, but there was a better option that he just discovered. And I was one of the first people who received that surgery. And that is they do two small cuts under each breast. So, and they just pry the ribs open. So there is no sawing through bones. And they do the same technique, one lung in, one lung out, and then lung out, one in. Um, but they don't saw through the middle. And also there's not the, all the weight that's on your chest for eight hours. This is how long the transplant takes. Um, so there is not that many issues afterwards. Your recovery is usually much smoother because you don't have any broken bones um, and, and it helps a lot more. You can do physio, you can, of course, there's fluids on your lungs afterwards. You are more mobile and yeah, it's just much, much uh, better. Recovery chances are much higher. Wow, so, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> So, okay, a new set of lungs, 
that was in 2013. Let's bring it forward now to 2015. And uh, to paint a picture for the listeners, you're standing on the side of a swimming pool, getting ready to race in the British Transplant Games. I mean, <laughs> in the space of two years, did you swim beforehand? Did you, did you used to swim? Obviously, you spent time surfing. Did you swim before your transplant? Breaststroke. I was only swimming breaststroke at the time because when it came to the sort of everything was done under the premise of it needs to be good for the lungs. It needs to be good for, you know, for the health. So we did breaststroke. So you excel underwater. So it was from breathing point of view, never, never from a competition point of view. I'd never competed in sports. I always did sports from a social perspective. I did horseback riding. I did basketball. I did jujitsu because I love being active and I love being with other people who did the same thing, you know. Uh, also, no one was precious about me in these scenarios. You know, we were all kids or, or teenagers. It wasn't Yanka with CF. It was, oh yeah, Yanka, she'd be all right. You know, that sort of thing. And I really liked that. Um, <laughs> but never did I ever compete. Um, my parents are not the competitive type. And they were always just happy that I was well enough to, to take part. I always did it to take part. Um, and I didn't know I was competitive until 2015 <laughs> when <Yeah>. I swam. <laughs> okay. So 2015, you did the British Transplant Games. I'm just going to reel off a little list of what you've achieved. Oh, God. Since. I'm going to cringe. <laughs> so 2015, you've won two bronze, two silver, two golds. 2016 you've won five bronze 2017 two bronze two silvers in the tr uh, world transplant games 2017 four pbs but in your own words gutted because you missed out um, on the medals 2018 four bronze four golds 2019 four silvers and then 2019 back to the world championships two bronze and two silvers now you know that list of medals is it's incredible you know and to re represent great britain and to have gone through a qualification process to represent great britain uh and that's not too far forward from when you were you know pre-lung transplant considering dignitas and facing the potential end of life what does it mean to you to be able to sit there and tell us uh, well, I've just told everyone, but tell, tell us about the medals that you've that you've won. How does that make you feel? Oh, it's of course I'm super proud. Um, and the medals are really great, and they the first the, the competitions and doing well in them give me a great confidence that I can do things I didn't think I could. Um, you know, I you know because you train and support me that I'm extremely nervous before events. I am so scared because I can see the competition. And, and one of the things, and I didn't realize that how much it's helped me to, for example, train with you, um, how much it's helped me now in lockdown and COVID to draw on my mental strength that I developed uh, partly with your help actually. Um, and, and this confidence goes beyond sport. So this confidence goes into, I could have a career. I'm good at this job. Why not? Why not have a career? I might live that long. You know, the confidence to, to you know, get married because, you know, um, we, we might have a really long life together, Rob and I, you know, and that is something I'm really proud of. 
Um, what I'm also really proud of is trying new things. So, you know, um, you know, when we did this, this, when I say we did this race together, that's very broadly put because we did start on the same line and we finished uh, yeah. on the same line, but at very different times. <laughs> um, but that dark, dark race, dark um, yeah, series, the that, yes, yeah. that yeah. was amazing. And it was my first uh, 15k that I that I ran I signed up for 10 and I got lost which is why I was 15 and um and I was I came last with a group of people so the medals are amazing but I feel I measured success not always on medals I measure my success sometimes on finishing a race or or not coming last or um, or the experience you know we were all five of us I think we were all lost in these woods and it was obviously nighttime. But the camaraderie and we shared our soup sweets out and, you know, those sort of things that that will never leave me. That was one of my favorite, favorite events ever or the Blenheim Triathlon, you know, with a group of people and seeing you guys and being cheered on. And my first ever triathlon, I never thought I could do one of the sports, let alone three of them in one day. It was your first triathlon the go try, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I, yes. I can I remember that day. I that cried. Was, yeah, that, was a, <laughs> that was a great day crossing the finish line. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. That's really cool. So then, you know, so you, obviously this year all competitions been taken off the table, as you said at the beginning. Lockdown's been really tough, and I don't, you know, I think we've covered a lot of that. You know, your background um, and your ability to kind of manage your mental approach to stuff is, is made you really robust and it's probably been what's helped you get through lockdown with the resilience that you have what's next for, for, for Yanka what's next on the challenge front on the life front you know what's 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 coming up in the next few years oh wow um do you know what I'm well we've um we've postponed our wedding we went to get married this year postponed for next year so that's that's exciting because I never I never grew up with this idea that I get married because it was never on my radar to live long enough to even entertain that idea. And, you know, I said, to, I remember when I met Rob or very shortly into our relationship, I was really happy as, as I still am. I'm like, oh my God, I got these lungs. I get this, this second chance in life. And then I also find someone who's this awesome, you know, like this kind of, you know, that feeling because you obviously met your life partner. And that is, that excites me. Um, life excites me. I've got a job I really enjoy, really enjoy. Um, I work for a charity uh, and I recruit support workers for people with learning disabilities to, to um, enable them to live independently. And that resonates with me all the way. So I, lo I love my job. Um, I love, I'm getting excited to get back into sports. I have signed up for the Weekend Warrior next year. <laughs> For the plenum, plenum. I'm nice. excited about that. I for love those, triathlons. For those that don't, don't know what the Weekend Warrior is, it's a sprint distance triathlon. So it's a 750 meter swim, 20 kilometer bike ride, and a 5k run. And when you cross the finish line, you go back to the beginning, put your wetsuit back on, and go again. And you keep doing that basically all weekend as many times as possible. So, yeah, quite a challenge. <laughs> Quite yeah, a challenge, yeah. yeah. Again, but, that is not about coming first. It's about surviving and just just having fun. I realised with training. Well, well, I was when I met you, I was training for pool events, and then I I went to Lanzarote to like a swim camp, um, and I met people who did open water swimming and long distance stuff, and I was like, oh wow, you know, you meet people and they do different things. The same with the with the try um you know, try swim team, 
that they do what they do for different reasons and they have all these different experiences and one of the my favorite things is to learn and to have my eyes open to to all these different events and to all these different things it was not known to me and it was also not available to me before and now it's a little bit like being a kid in a sweet shop and being like oh my god I want to do everything you know because now I can physically um so yeah it's it's so exciting so exciting <laughs> oh that's amazing well you know I'm obviously going to be keeping an eye on you and seeing what you've got in the future but this the last I don't know how long it's been I've lost track of the time it's so interesting I could talk about this with you for ages and I'm sure you know we could do a follow-up at some point you know with the next I don't know when you've got a couple more world championship medals um but <laughs> let's hope so <laughs> Yanka, your story is so inspiring it's one of those stories that you know I, I'll be honest if I'm having a bit of an off day with myself or I'm facing something that I'm getting a little bit nervous about or anxious about your story is one of those stories that I call upon to make me think hang on a minute <laughs> what I've got what I'm facing is nothing compared to you know what you've been through and what what what's kind of built you into the resilient person you are today and I really wanted to get you onto the podcast to inspire other people to from listening to your story to, to show that there is there's always uh, positivity there's always direction there's always things you can control and there's always things you can focus on even when times are pretty bad and pretty dark and pretty unknown and I think we've all felt that in the last nine months this year with various different reasons and you know it's just great to talk to you about this stuff and and if if we can inspire people just to to be positive and to take take things from your story then that's only a good thing absolutely but, can I just throw in um yeah, of anyone who's listening if you do consider uh, you know um signing up to organ donation that would be amazing of course uh, everyone has their own reasons but it'd be amazing to just think about that and if you do make a decision whichever way it is um, just want to encourage everyone to talk to their loved ones about this so they know what your wishes are um, makes things a lot easier in terrible times I'm very grateful to my donor and her family my donor was um, 23 and she's a young girl and I don't know how she died but I'm of course incredibly grateful for those seven extra years I've gotten so far and hopefully many more so yeah just wanted to get that in there <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. A very valid point to, to put in there as well. So, Yanka, we're going to wrap up now. Thank you so much for your time. I hugely appreciate it. Appreciate it. I've really enjoyed it. I know we're going to work, keep working together over the next few years with whatever you've got lined up, the Weekend Warrior and, and probably plenty more. But for now, thank you very much. And uh, for the listeners, keep tuning in. We've got some more really exciting guests over the coming weeks. And uh, we look forward to bringing you some more awesome content. Thanks, everybody. Bye.